Thanks, Brandon. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, I think I just have to clear the air real quick, because uh, as Brandon said, this is the first time that I've had the privilege and the opportunity of teaching at Crossroads. When Rod asked me, and I agreed, uh, the stage was still over there, and I forgot that we would be in the round again. Um, and so, as you can imagine, first time teaching in this sphere, I might have to apologize to like the West Wing, or the East Coast, or the South, or the North, because... Uh, you may feel like you don't see much of my face, and I apologize because I'm still trying to get acclimated to this walking and pacing and around um, that all of our pastors seem to do so eloquently. Um, so right away, I just want to say that. Again, like Brandon said, uh, my name is Nathan, and my wife Jana and I and our kids have called this community home uh, for the better part of nine years back uh, at the Walker Charter Academy. I feel like I still have dreams of that wildcat bobcat thing on the wall. Sometimes I feel like we just need to have that on the screen every once in a while to remember our roots. Um, So yes, been here for nine years. If you've been a part of Crossroads or any length of time, you do know that we uh, try our best not to take ourselves too seriously, but we do take the Word of God seriously here at Crossroads. Um, I see Crossroads as a bit of a, a teaching hospital, and in that, I kind of feel like a brand new resident Um, But that's the beauty of the gospel, right? We're all equal under the gospel. Um, I'm just a layman in the church, and I have another full-time job, um, but I have a privilege of of coming to you with the Word of God, struggling, wrestling with it, um, and hopefully that can be an encouragement to us this morning that um, we all can approach the Word of God, that we can find the richness of God's truth and His blessing within it, um, and hopefully we're going to do that this morning together. Uh, So I'm just excited to be here. It really is a privilege. Um, and I just want to, again, right off the bat, just thank you for the opportunity to serve in this capacity. Um, as a teaching hospital, um, you have the privilege and the opportunity of creating an environment that's safe for people like me to hopefully grow in our skills and our ability, God-given gifts and talents, to, to minister uh, through the Holy Spirit. So, uh, a little bit of background on me. I'm a wedding photographer, actually by trade. Um, I've been doing that for quite some time and absolutely love it. It's a privilege to join people on their wedding days leading up to that day and hopefully far beyond into their marriage. Something I'm really passionate about. Uh, But actually, a few years ago, God started to tug on the hearts of my wife and I um, to possibly transition us and move us into a new direction. We uh, had the privilege of going to Oxford in 2015 to work alongside our dear friends Neil, Neil and Ruth Martin, uh, in Trinity Church, I think probably many of you maybe know Neil and Ruth. I thought about maybe trying to channel some British accent this morning to kind of up my IQ, uh, but to no avail. It would have been just a distraction. So um, again, that was an incredible year for us, uh, really transformative, uh, really difficult, if we're honest uh, with ourselves. Spiritually speaking, it was probably one of the hardest years of our lives. Uh, But even in the midst of that, my wife and I felt all the more called uh, to ministry. And so we returned home uh, and decided that I would go back to school, that I would begin studying, hopefully prepping to be a pastor in some aspect, in some vocation. Um, And that prompting, uh, yeah, led us to, for me to go back to school. Um, And also, um, you know, just purposely seeking out ways to, to minister within the local body of Christ. And so that kind of brings me to this morning. Uh, Rod graciously gave me the trust and the opportunity to, to teach 
Um, so I'm excited about that. Hopefully, on, this, on display this morning is the heart of this church, which is discipleship, raising up people to, uh, to know Christ more. I know that's all of our calls, each individually in our lives. Um, and so hopefully, uh, uh, people even like me, far from refined, far from perfect, far from having it all together, we might have a chance to serve the body of Christ uh, through the leading of the Holy Spirit. So if that wasn't the longest introduction we've ever heard at Crossroads. I have more, more before we get to the Word of God, but we'll get there, I promise. Um, over the past two weeks, a couple things have really uh, have been weighing heavily on my heart as I've been studying the passage we're going to look at this morning, and I just wanted to share those with you um, right off the bat. The first thing, and Brandon already mentioned it this morning, Crossroads, uh, this is a big community. I mean, look around. There's a lot of us in this room. Uh, we had our Saturday night service last night, which actually was really full, too. I wasn't sure what to expect, because we usually attend on Sunday mornings, and we have another service at 11. There's a lot of us here, right? Um, and I'm going to guess that in a room this size, and in a community this big, there may be some of you that don't actually believe this, don't actually believe that this is the Word of God, don't believe that um, what God says in His Word is true, don't believe that this is inerrant, that it is perfect, that it is exactly what God wants us to know about him and his story. Um, perhaps you're here this morning and you don't really know why you're here. Or maybe you do know why you're here. There's a, um, a feeling like tension, right, that um, what we're going to talk about really doesn't land with you. Um, and I just want to tell you that this church, our desire is to be a safe place for skepticism, for doubt, for hard questions of life. Um, I know I can speak and attest in my own life. There's been plenty of doubt, uh, plenty of questions. Uh, we want to be a place that is safe to answer those questions. Maybe this morning specifically, some of those um, heavy life questions might not be answered specifically, but just know that we want to be a place where we can wrestle with those questions of life and get beyond just high theological thought and bring it down to the real nitty-gritty of life. Um, and so I want you to know that even if you don't know why you're here, if you feel like you're in the wrong place among a bunch of Christians, um, just know that I think, I think most of us would agree that we believe you're in the right place, that God has something to say this morning, um, and this is a safe place for you, and I rejoice that you're here with us this morning. So that's number one. Um, number two, uh, it's quite important as well, if I can just look at my notes, this is again my first time, right? I'll just echo back to that. Um, secondly, today, this message, it's about hope. Hope in the midst of darkness. Uh, darkness that perhaps you personally feel drenched in. Um, I know when I look around at headlines, at my neighborhood, um, sometimes even my family, my own life, I feel it. I feel that subtle pulling at the fabric of peace. Um, but take heart, brothers and sisters. Um, there's hope. And we get to talk about it this morning. So, amen, thanks. Um, so with that, I do invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 15, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. If you have a blue Bible like mine, it's found on page 896. But alas, a mystery has been solved. There are two different types of blue Bibles. I don't know if anybody else has recognized this. Um, in weeks past, I think I've heard like, okay, it's on this page, and I would open it up, and it wasn't on that page. There are two different types of blue Bibles. So, 
Um, the mystery has been solved. If you have a blue Bible like mine, it's 896. And if you have one of the other blue Bibles, I believe it's 783. So hopefully we're tracking. If you brought your own Bible, I don't know what page uh, Acts 15 is on. But I'll trust that you can find it. It's towards the end of your Bible. Um, so this morning we find ourselves in the very center of Acts, in the midst of a growing debate in the early church. And here at Crossroads, we like to, to sit for words uh, from people like me, but we like to stand for the Word of God. So if you're able, please stand with me as we read uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Now, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this brought Paul and Barnabas in sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this very question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all of the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this very question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made among you, made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us or them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why? Why do we try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. This is the word of God. You guys can grab a seat. So this morning, our story uh, opens in Antioch, um, at a time and place where Paul had found his home church in Antioch. Uh, now, where is Antioch? I think that's probably a valid question for us to ask. Um, in relation to the church that's centered in Jerusalem at this time in the first century, Antioch is pretty much just directly due north, about 300 miles, uh, in what is now present-day Turkey, very close to Syria as well, about 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. So if you can kind of imagine the Mediterranean Sea, um, the northeastern corner of that point, that's right about where Antioch is. And this uh, was the church that Paul called home. It was his home church. It was his community. Him and Barnabas had been serving here for quite some time. And it's actually from this church that Paul had been sent out already on his first missionary journey. This church, uh, to be sure, was full of Gentile converts and believers. Gentiles, those that would have been outside of Jewish tradition and faith. And we also know from Acts 11 uh, that this is the very place where the followers of Jesus, the disciples, were first called 
Christians. So this is a pretty special place, um, especially since today we still hold on to that claim and that name of being Christians. Um, And I would venture to guess that if you were a seeker or looking to find a community in the first century, a community of hip, culturally relevant uh, people, diverse gospel-preaching church in the first century that served really good Ferris coffee, um, I would say that Antioch might have been a good candidate, uh, a good church to, to call home. And it's into this church that these men from Jerusalem, these believers, these Christians, Jewish Christians, uh, came with a very loud message. And that message was this, right? Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I think something uh, that would be helpful for us to know at this point in the story was that circumcision uh, would have been the final act of conversion for anyone seeking to convert to Judaism. So uh, if we've looked at the law in the Old Testament, there's a lot that has to do with the law, but circumcision would have been this culminating event. Um, And so it was this first sign also that God gave Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17. It was the physical sign of saying, I've picked you, your people, you, Abraham, and your descendants to be set apart for me. And so you can, ex- you can experience and, and understand how circumcision in the law, it would have had a lot of weight to these Jewish Christians, a lot of expectation in keeping the law. But why did these men from Jerusalem come with such a loud message? Well, something new was happening, wasn't it? Things were changing. And everyone could feel it. It was the growing pains of the kingdom of God. On one hand, you had these Jewish followers of Christ. Had their heritage, their ancestry. I mean, their very lives lived and breathed the word of God, the Torah. And for them, the law, it was a really, really big deal. I mean, perhaps the closest thing for us uh, this morning, today, might be communion, maybe baptism, something that is a part of our identity, something that is a part of us experiencing God, part of being a part of his story. So you can understand it would have been a big deal. Now perhaps uh, for some Jews, the law was truly joy. It was a way of honoring Yahweh. Perhaps it was also pride, a stamp of approval saying, we are God's people. And up until now, their way, meaning the Jewish way, uh, would have been the way to experience God. Circumcision, the law of Moses, signs of God's covenant with his people, right? So that would have been the way to experience the God who created the world. So it makes sense that this is very close and intrinsic to who these Jewish Christians are. So you have the Jewish Christians, and then on the other hand, you have these Gentile converts, the foreigners, right? Gentile means foreigner, outsider, outcast, Um, Now, certainly some of the the Gentiles in the first century would have been aware of the Jewish custom and law. You had God-fearers like Cornelius that that you can read about in Acts. Um, Proselytes who would have been Greeks, Gentiles who had fully converted to Judaism. Um, And so you have so many different people in this church, maybe possibly even um, people who had just stumbled out of the culture of Hellenism and maybe that pagan temple down the street and found a home in Antioch. And this was the challenge of the early church, to bring these distinctly different groups into fellowship with one another. Now that Jesus Christ had come, how do we move forward in unity? Worshiping the same God, having community as one body, having fellowship, eating together. 
You know, and I think this notion, um, even today, is a powerful one. Do we have community with people who are very different from us? Do we know what the chief things are that unite us as the body of Christ? What really matters, what really doesn't? I remember early on when we started attending Crossroads, one thing that stuck with me that Rod mentioned was, we like to shout what the Bible shouts and whisper what the Bible whispers. Do we know what the Bible shouts and what unites us under the headship of Christ? I mean, in a community like Grand Rapids, there's a lot of churches. Do we have community with the sister churches around us? I don't know if you were here before the holidays, but uh, Pastor Kazumbo came from Tabernacle Church uh, to, to share with us. And I actually know Kazumbo from my time at, at school. Um, he's a good friend of mine. And I don't know if any of you followed up on what Rod mentioned to say, hey, go and visit Tabernacle. If you have been there, amazing. If you haven't, I, again, encourage you to go. Tabernacle Church, very different from Crossroads Church. Um, but that's a good thing. And it's a sister church, and we love to be in fellowship with them. It's powerful, and it's important for us to see that under the headship of Christ, there is unity. But this, this is why that council in Jerusalem was called. Questions of unity. Questions of salvation. What did it really mean to be saved in Jesus? Was the law to be followed? Circumcision? How much of the law? And you know what, Paul? He cared deeply about all of this. If we look in verse 2, it says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Some versions translate this passage saying, No small dissension. Right? So a bit of a revolt, an uproar. We wouldn't have it this way. But why? Why does this matter so much to Paul? We read this verse in Galatians um, several times, uh, looking at the life of Paul. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says this, For you have heard of my previous way in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. With all the knowledge... With all the pedigree, the pride, the insight, the intelligence, Paul had set himself up against Jesus. And when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, as we've looked at that passage, what does Jesus do? Does he hold Paul accountable for the destruction of Christian families, for the imprisonment of Christians, for the approval of Stephen stoning? No. Jesus extends his grace to Paul. Jesus extends himself. You have set yourself up against me, Paul. But now, now you will preach me to the ends of the world. Now this, this is why it matters to Paul. You see, Paul, for his whole life, after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, he knew what he deserved. And yet, the face of Jesus His mercy and his grace, it consumed Paul. So much so that he would spend the rest of his life fighting against anything that would set itself up as equally necessary to Jesus for salvation. He spent his life fighting for Jesus, championing Jesus. I wonder, do we do that? Do we fight for Jesus? I know I fight for a lot of things. Um, Thinking about some examples this week, when you get on a plane and you have your boarding number, right? 
For some reason, we all like to crowd around the gate even before our boarding number gets called. Even though we know we don't get to get on yet, we still seem to like, I need to be in line. I need to make sure I get my spot. When we go to the grocery store and we bring that box of Cheerios to the checkout and they ring it up and we see, wait a second, I saw that there was a dollar off coupon. It's not ringing up, so we're going to fight for that dollar. There's plenty of small things that we fight for throughout life. There's a lot of things that we fight for that are even more heavy, right? Things that are important, championing those that are, uh, that are weak in society, that have been taken advantage of. There's a lot of things worthy of fighting for. But above all, do we fight for Jesus? Do we, make, do we fight to make him known, to proclaim his goodness and his salvation? You know, you don't have to look very far in Paul's writings, in any of Paul's writings, to see that he cared about this question of Jesus and the law. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Galatians 1, 3. I mean, the list goes on. This was worth the disagreement with those men from Jerusalem. This was worth fighting. That creeping notion that Jesus wasn't enough. Paul was witness, if we look in verse 4 and again in verse 12, to Gentile brothers and sisters throughout the whole world hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being transformed, finding salvation. Paul's gospel, as he would go on to describe in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, was this, to preach Jesus, the person in the face of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, because in the face of Jesus could be found the fullness of the glory of God. Now they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I don't know in your life if you have one of these pictures from your past, maybe not a digital picture on your phone or something, but actually a tangible printed picture that when you look at it, it can transport you back to uh, maybe a season of life, an experience, an all-encompassing emotion. For me, I grew up on the West Coast in the state of Washington, and growing up, we did a lot of backpacking when I was a kid. Uh, It was something that I loved dearly, Um, and actually in second grade, my dad decided to take my brother and I, along with my uncles and my cousins, to hike the Grand Canyon. Sounds like awesome vacation, right? Um, Good prep for Israel. Very dry, pretty much just a desert. Um, And the thing about the Grand Canyon is that from the South Rim all the way down to the Colorado River is roughly about a 5,000-foot elevation change. Now, there's a picture that my dad took of me uh, when we were hiking, and that one picture... If I take any time to look at it, it brings me right back. I mean, I can taste the dust in my mouth. I can remember seeing the Colorado River for the first time um, after many days of just hiking through barren rock. I remember finding my first scorpion and thinking, oh, this is so cool. Um, Snakes, like all these different experiences. I mean, it was probably a week and a half long trip. can all be summed up when I look at that image uh, that my dad took of me. Now, this is a very poor example when put up next to Jesus, but Jesus is that and infinitely more for us. To gaze upon Jesus and to be in his presence is to be given a window into the unending and limitless majesty and beauty of God Almighty. The fullness of God can be witnessed in the face of Jesus. And for Paul, Freedom in Christ was paramount. Freedom from the burden of the law. Freedom from condemnation. And Peter agrees. 
when speaking to those church leaders who would have the Gentiles circumcised, in verse 10 he says, Now then, why? Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? It just simply cannot be Jesus plus anything else. It must firmly and chiefly be Jesus, period. Paul had given his life to the cause of preaching and reaching the Gentiles. He had pursued this calling in his life. 1 Corinthians says he sought to preach and know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Just Jesus. That was salvation for the Gentiles. It was salvation for the Jews. It was the purpose of the council. Salvation comes from nothing. Please hear me. Comes from nothing except the fullness of Jesus Christ. For us today, this morning, who know Jesus, who have met him face to face, we need to hear this truth, don't we? Another thing about Crossroads that we often talk about is preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful things. They tell us that we know a truth when perhaps we've forgotten the true power of it. Let us fix our eyes on the one who knows what we deserve and yet offers the unfathomable depths of his love and mercy. Let our hearts rest in Jesus. Let us know the fullness of our salvation is in Christ and let us fight to make him known among the nations, among our neighbors, among our co-workers, among our children. Let our lives be lived out in a joy that comes from his presence. But I think I know what you're thinking because studying this passage, I thought it too, many times. What about the law? Or maybe today for us it sounds like this. What about those other verses from Jesus, from Paul, from James? The good deeds that we are called to the avoidance of sin, the working out of our salvation. And I think the key is the order of it all. It's not love Jesus and do good all in the same thought, all in the same sentence. No, it is love Jesus. Know him. See him. See his grace, his mercy, his love, his glory. Know that your salvation is safe and secure in his hands. And then, only then, can obedience come from a place of freedom and joy. As Jesus reminds us in Luke, when we know how much we have been forgiven, our love for the one who forgave our debts is able to grow. Only then, Can a life of pursuing love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control not be a burden, but a thing of gratitude, a thing of joy? Because, why? We know what we deserve. And yet, just like Paul on the road to Damascus, we are given mercy and love and and a purpose in life. Jesus said, if you love, you will keep my commandments. But we must love him first. So what about you in this room who maybe hasn't come face to face with this Jesus? Or maybe, maybe his face is far off. Maybe when I open today, 
with this idea that we'd be talking about hope hasn't come to pass for you. Maybe these words today feel as if they hurt more than they heal. For they remind you that only others seem to be experiencing this communion with Jesus. But you, you're left with only darkness in your world. Maybe it's the abuse. Maybe the depression. Injustice. Loss. Heartache. Physical pain. Brothers, sisters, hear this, please. We have a God who is in the darkness with us. When we feel distant from God the Father, when we begin to believe that the pain and the sorrow of this world will swallow us up, in those dark places, we have Jesus. We have a trustworthy Savior. Not because of just what he says, but because of what he has done. Jesus is the only one who can find us in the dark because he knows the dark. He let the dark spit in his face. He let the dark rip his body apart. And he let the dark, rather our dark, damn him and plunge him into the place that we deserved. The place our abusers deserve. The place all pain and sorrow and sickness and wretchedness and hopelessness deserves. This morning I want to share with you a part of a poem that actually we've seen here at Crossroads before. I think it's important and helpful if we see it while we hear it. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. What a gift we have, church. What a gift the world has, even if they don't recognize it. The early church saw it. Paul, with every fiber in his being, knew it. All the hope and the longing of the prophets, the aching of creation itself, since the blackness of sin had crept into the world, all waiting for what? For Christ. And now, friends, he's here. So let us seek him. Let us seek his face with everything that we have. For Jesus is trustworthy. He is good. He alone holds all hope. And he alone is enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, many of these things perhaps we've heard a lot in our lives. Perhaps growing up in the church, maybe this is the first time we've heard it. Lord, I desperately pray that these truths would move from the space in our head to reside firmly in our hearts. That you would just melt our hearts as we gaze into your eyes. What a gift it is to know that we don't have to look far and wide. We don't have to wonder if we're missing something. All we have to do 
is look at you, Jesus. For you promise us that in you is the fullness of the glory of God Almighty. Lord God, thank you so much for the privilege of opening your word, seeing that it is the bread of life, that it brings us life in the most difficult of times, in times of sorrow, but also in times of joy. May we worship and honor you this morning because you are worthy of it all. You're trustworthy, you're good, and you are enough, Lord. Thank you. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.